The following is a Bunkazilla original production. We are monsters of culture. Welcome to the Film Raw here at Bunkerzilla, the place where we talk about the latest movie news and, of course, the latest movie reviews. I am one of your hosts, Ian Bolton, and I'm joined by my cinematic cohort in crime. It's Christian R. Allen. Hello, Christian. Hello, Ian. Hello. How have you been? How has your cinematic life been since the last episode? Okay, I've seen Parasite. Okay, which we will talk about that which later. Which we'll on. talk about later. We, I also watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off for the Ooh. first time in my life. Ooh, so I, I am, I've, I've ticked off all the '80s comedies I have to have watched before I die. Okay, that's good. That's good. I've got quite a bit of Bond backlog on my uh, on my list this week, <laughs> which we will touch on in the later <laughs> half of the show. But uh, of course, this uh, this episode we're going to be looking at things such as Spielberg dropping out of Indiana Jones Five, mm. and our main attraction review this week is Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford. So it's the Call of the Wild. Okay, I stand corrected. It's the Call of the Wild. I mean, to be fair, I think in last week's episode I called it Into the Wild anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't tell me off for that, which I appreciate. Well, that's because people will end up probably seeing that um, Emil Hirsch film, <laughs> which apparently was supposed to be quite good, Into the Wild. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but then when you're looking about where's the CGI dog, I'm so confused. <laughs> all um, I came here for was Indiana Jones. And the CGI dog. Uh, and we'll, we'll touch a bit more on The Call of the Wild in a little bit. But first, let's crack on with news. One story this week. And it's, uh, like we said just a few moments ago, Steven Spielberg will not direct Indiana Jones 5. Uh, he's dropped out. Um, currently, James Mangold, uh, director of Logan and Le Mans 66, or Ford, Ford versus, versus Ferrari, Ferrari, if you're in the US, <laughs> uh, is currently in negotiations to direct. And this was first reported by Variety. Um, so according to the article, Spielberg is going to remain on as a hands-on producer. Um, I've got questions about that in a few moments. Um, but according to a source close to the filmmaker, the decision to leave the director's chair was entirely Spielberg's in a desire to pass along Indy's whip to a new generation to bring their perspective to the story. Um, as far as we're aware, Harrison Ford is still starring in it uh, during the press tours for Call of the World. He said the filming was going to start imminently within the next two months. And when Disney first announced the new Indiana Jones film in 2016 with Spielberg directing and Ford starring, uh, the studio originally slated the film to come out in 2019. It was then pushed back to 2020. So to avoid Star Wars. Possibly. And then delayed again to 2021 uh, because uh, one of the script writers, David Cope, had left the project. So right. they had another scriptwriter coming on. So it doesn't sound uh, promising, does it? No, because it's likely to believe that a new director will delay the production further beyond 2021. Yep. Um, but there's no no official confirmation yet, to be perfectly honest. Um, so yeah, it's it's all up in the air. Um, so I've got a few questions already to ask. Yeah. What is a hands-on producer? Is it basically Spielberg is going to be on set still and just say, I wouldn't film it like that? That's that's my impression. Yeah. I mean, um, and if if if, if if you're a director and someone speaks to you that way, you'd be slightly annoyed. But if it's Steven Spielberg, you might be... <laughs> well, it's kind of like a way of saying, oh, I'm learning from the master. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand the point of passing on the whip, so to speak, if Harrison Ford is still going to be indie. It sounds yeah. like it sounds like this could have been the perfect excuse, opportunity for a, a proper reboot. Yeah, like a younger Indiana Jones. A younger Indiana Jones. Because I know they kind of touted like Chris Pratt years ago for it. Yeah, I actually think Chris Pratt would have been 
quite a good choice. I think it'd have been better in that than he has been in the Jurassic Park movies. Although I'm a minority, I don't really like the world movies. Well, the third one started filming. Uh, just started filming uh, last week at time of recording. It's called Jurassic World Dominion. Dominion, well, not Dominion. not the minions. No, no, Dominion. <laughs> just the minions. Not not Universal Fort. Dinosaurs, minions. <gasps> Crossover gold. DreamWorks and Illumination present. Illumination. <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what you listeners don't realise is that Ian is dressed as a minion right now. By which I mean he's completely naked and covered in yellow paint. Yep, I'm bright. I'm yellow. I'm like a banana. Mmm, tasty. I'd peel you. <laughs> so yeah, we've got we've got so we've got the. So we've got the hands-on producer element. That, that doesn't sound good at that, all. That sound, as much as I, I think Spielberg would be very professional and respectful in that manner, I just it just sounds a bit odd. It just yeah. sounds a bit odd. It's kind of like saying, it, yeah, to me, it just to me, it sounds like he's still just going to be in the director's chair. He's just going to make sure whoever's in there doesn't fuck up. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but the final matter is, Mangold, I think, is a really good choice. No, no. I mean, I, I thought Ford versus Ferrari was one of my favourite dad movies of all time. Yeah, the dad, um, the dad movie where it's okay to cry a bit as well. Absolutely. And the good thing is we have a director here who knows how to film chase sequences. Yep. Even like, look at Logan. Look at Logan. Logan was phenomenal. Logan was one of the best comic book out of genre movies. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he, and he was Oscar nominated for Logan. Was he? What, for yeah. director? Uh, for writing, I think. Oh. He uh, adapted screenplay, I think. Right, that would yeah. make sense. No, Logan yeah. was a phenomenal movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think even if Mangold comes on, I think this film's been delayed. This film's going to get delayed again. Yeah, I, I, I would be surprised if Harrison Ford actually sticks around, and unless he's just after the paycheck. I don't know. To be perfectly honest, do we really need an Indiana Jones 5? I don't, I don't think we needed an Indiana Jones 4. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I enjoyed that film, but it just felt very superficial. I, I, got, I got very pissed off of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull for one particular reason, and that was Aliens. Yeah, it's a, it's a film based on Judeo-Christian mythology. Mm. And then it changed. <laughs> so three films based on Judeo-Christian mythology, and then a fourth film based on 1950s Aliens. <laughs> Doesn't work. You see, one or the other. It's just really jarring. Definitely George Lucas's baby. That fourth Indiana Jones film. Yeah. That wasn't a Spielberg movie. You can kind of. It felt as a viewer. It felt to me he was phoning it in. Yeah. And yeah. I'd I'd rather Spielberg not film a fifth one and be disinterested in it. <laughs> if he was going to be disinterested in it, rather um, than try and force it through the gate, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know. It's I I. I don't feel that like this film's going to be made. I mean, it does get made. It's not going to be the film that people want. Uh, I kind of think it's going to be, we're all going to get lost in the nostalgia trap again. And then we're still going to realise the horrible reality of this film's past itself by date. I think the nostalgia madness that the world has engaged in over the last 10 years, especially through Hollywood, I think that's slowly waning. I think people are losing interest in the past. Um, and I think this will probably be, caught the this would be the very much the end of the wave mm. um it's just i could be wrong i mean like sonic the hedgehog's making stupid money so but it's a new franchise that's true actually yeah that's i very think that's true. the thing i mean you look at all these big franchises and people going back to the well it's like star wars we've had the new trilogy which has been kind of like a middling success probably different views depending on how you look at the storylines and so yeah forth. I, I think the, the sequel trilogy is it's successful to a point. <laughs> to a point. I, I, I mean, it's clearly made money, but I think the long-term damage is probably wrecked the brand for quite a while, to plus, be honest. Uh, and I think, plus, you look at some of the side films as well, which 
They are decent films. Rogue One is great. I, I really like Rogue One. I enjoyed elements of it. I, to be honest, my problem with Rogue One is I wanted a Darth Vader movie. <laughs> so, you, you kind of think in this day and age we have good technological stance now that we can have a proper Darth Vader being Darth Vader style movie. Yeah. Which they kind of tease at the very end of Rogue One and you kind of go, that bit was awesome. That, that was my favourite moment in the film. And yeah. it was only two minutes long. Not yep. even that. Yep. Um, um, I, so I thought Solo was, I, thought, I found it really dull. I, I, think, I think Solo came damaged, I guess, considering Lord and Miller were directors. Yeah. And then they got kind of sacked halfway through the through the shoot. It was it was clearly it, was, it sounded very uh reminiscent to Edgar Wright's issues with Kevin Feige. Um, yeah. the fact that they were trying to they're clearly trying to put their own individual stamp on a movie that needs to conform to a wider cinematic world or, or universe. Yeah, probably. and I and I think to a degree that's why Danny Boyle left Bond. Yeah, I yeah. I don't I didn't feel like Danny Boyle was a particularly good fit for that. I don't think Tarantino is a good fit for Bond and every time his name gets thrown around I'm just like eh. It's the same with Nolan. Everyone goes, "Oh, Nolan will be perfect to direct a Bond film." Look really? at all the influences in Inception stuff like that. It's like Christopher Nolan would want full creative control and unfortunately as much as we would love to see it the Broccolis uh, Eon, the Broccoli. or Eon Broccoli. Bro- <laughs> uh, they are Broccolis. Uh, Michael G. Wilson is a stepson of of Albert Broccoli. Oh, right. Um basically they they hold the lock and key. It's yeah. basically their way or the highway. Slightly different, I guess. I guess with the Daniel Craig films moving forward, because obviously we talked previously about Daniel Craig having a, a bigger say in some of the elements, like the song, like the castings, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But I think when even when the new Bond comes in after Craig, if there's a new Bond after Craig, um, yeah, uh, the yeah, the Broccoli's are still going to hold the hold the power, whether you like it or not. It's the same with Kevin Kevin Feige, basically. You could come in with all many different ideas. If it doesn't fit that overall creative vision of that producing team, you are not going to get that artistic freedom. No. Well, it's interesting because, like, I mean, it, it, we're starting to live in the age of producer again, which always was the case. Yeah. It was only the age of the auteur director is only, well. I guess you look back at, I mean, I, re- I vaguely remember things like Robert Evans and Coppola coming to blows on The Godfather, for really? example. So yeah, it's basically copper. It's basically Evans. It's like um, it's well documented. I think in the fir- in the book, the kid stays in the picture. So yeah. if you're really into your filmmaking history and stuff like that, go read it or watch the documentary. They're really good. They're really good things. Um, but yeah, it's just it's like that. That's been con- that's always been there in the history of Hollywood of producers coming uh, and saying, "I think you need to do this rather than that," and the directors going. <laughs> well, you, you've got to see things from a producer's perspective yeah. because obviously they're the ones who are. Cash ro- rolling these productions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, they're the ones putting the money I mean, in. I, they're I, the I ones mean, that want to see the return. Absolutely. But I, I, the history of Hollywood is listed through of examples of um, producers making monumental mistakes at the expense of the creative vision of the directors. So, yeah, the, obviously the producers are the ones who are in charge of financing the mm. production. So it's going to obviously be a strain between someone who's keeping an eye on the bank as opposed to someone who knows, well, if we do this, it will make a much better film. We can't do that because it will take too much of this. So, it, I mean, that that's a classic tension. Because um, you look at, for example, you look at, say, Nolan's Batman films. Nolan's yeah. a producer. Yeah. Nolan is, the, <laughs> Nolan is one of the key producers of the film, as well as the writer, as well as the director. It's interesting that you can have filmmakers who are giving such... I mean, it's Stanley Kubrick was yeah. given un, unreal levels of freedom. Um, I guess it was just, um, I don't know, maybe just got along with a certain producer better. Yeah, I think it's just generally about the right director and the right producing team teaming yeah, up together. And their relationship with the studio. I mean, like, like Warner Brothers clearly had no qualms with Kubrick, as far as I'm aware. 
Um, but again, you look at Marvel, you look at some of the some of the standouts in the Marvel canon of films. I mean, it's like the Russos clearly have a good relationship yeah. with with Kevin Feige because their ones are usually regarded by critics and audiences as the best ones, yeah. like uh, Winter Soldier, like Civil War, like uh, Infinity War and Endgame. And why, uh, why wouldn't you dedicate your resources to their work when yeah. they're producing the better films? Yeah. yeah, and I think when those parts come together and they work well together, then obviously you're going to have a really successful partnership. Mm. Um, and, and, and again, that's probably why, for example, you look at the last strain of, uh, not strain, you look at the last batch of Harry Potter films, um, I think everything post Goblet of Fire was David Yates directing. Yes, it was. Yes, because again, it's like everything just seemed to click in place by that time. He, he, he directed Goblet of Fire as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did Goblet of Fire, and then, then straight through to the straight through to Fantastic yes. Beasts, which was which was needed. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the Fantastic Beast movies, but I do like the fact that there, there was a singular creative force behind the camera for those last, the more adult. Um, Harry Potter movies because they they felt consistent for the first time. Oh yeah, it's like the first two were directed by Chris Columbus and yeah. they're, they're, they're uber bright and uber cheery and uber family fr- uh, uber family friendly. If you Google, I'm not sure what words you need to Google this, but basically, someone um, on the internet extracted the primary color in every single scene from every Harry Potter movie and laid it as a um, chart from mm. the first opening scene of Philosopher's Stone to the end of Deathly Hallows, and it's amazing how con- just increasingly dark. And grimy it gets. <laughs> it's, it always starts off as a rainbow, and by the end of it, it's oh, this is a Marilyn Manson music video color palette here. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it feels like that was it, retrospectively, they'd probably say that was the intent to match the, the sort of increasing darkness of the theme of the books, but it wasn't. It was just <laughs> it was no, <laughs> probably probably not, probably not. But um, yeah, let's leave it there for now. Um, but yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, let us know what you thought, think about the Indiana Jones Five situation. Email us at contact at bunkazilla.co.uk. Right, shall we have a film review? Yes. Let's roll a clip. The Yukon is a dangerous place. You never know what's coming. I came up here because I didn't want to be around anyone. And then I met Buck. He was a dog like no other. He'd been spoiled. Out! Come on, Buck! And he'd suffered. Come on! But he could not be broken. Right, our main attraction review for this episode is The Call of the Wild. It's based on the 1903 novel by Jack London, and it tells of a lovable dog called Buck who finds his life uprooted and taken up north to the snowy regions of Canada. Um, yeah, this is directed by Chris Sanders, co-director of Lilo and Stitch and the very first How to Train Your Dragon. And this marks his first live action solo project. Um, and it's also not the first film adaptation of this. It has been adapted... Um, it has been adapted in 1935 with Clark Gable, of all people. Um, and basically the basic plot is we we follow Buck, this dog, as he goes from wealthy family all the way up to Canada and through the various owners. So there's a, a postman played by Omar Sy, and then there is, who's, who is pretty much front and centre through all the marketing campaign, there is um, a grieving uh, prospector played by Harrison Ford as well. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Who wants to start on this? It's just like we it's like we're both kind of. I think. Oh, <laughs> right. Um, so you can tell 
You can tell this is the director of How to Train Your Dragon, the fact that the CGI is very good mm. until a human walks on. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, when, the, when the dogs are on their own, mm. uh, like the early scenes where um, Buck, is it Buck? It is Buck, isn't it? It is yeah. Buck, yeah. Buck the dog is in a reluctant fight with another alpha to mm. d- d- determine um, dominance in the pack. Um, I thought that scene worked really well. The scenes where there's the whole, the focus is on the CGI pack racing through an avalanche scene. I, I thought that's very exhilarating. Um, and yeah, a- anything with the dogs, I really enjoyed and I, I was really quite captivated. The moment a human being walks on screen, it's so painfully obvious you're staring at a CGI dog. It completely breaks the illusion. Yeah. To the point where I would have probably rather had the. <laughs> Maybe the entire film should have been CGI and stylized to an extent. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's it's good in a way, thinking long terms for this kind of storytelling, because I feel uncomfortable with the exploitative nature of um, Hollywood when it comes to using animals mm. and the kind of scenes required of animals in this film from the not just based on the novel would have been beyond ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so you, can under, so you can understand why the CGI comes no, in. No, no, it makes complete sense. It's just it doesn't work. Yeah. I've, I think the CGI, I'm, I'm with you. I think the CGI is good. Um, I like how it's used sometimes in things like the last version of The Lion King. The CGI actually <laughs> allows the um, animals to emote. You actually sense yeah. there's emotion with the animals, and that's a really good thing for this story. The problem is you are right. The CGI, while it's good, you know you're watching something computer-generated, and that's the problem. Lion King was too perfect but it had no emotion. Yeah. Call, the Call of the World has great CGI, but it's too obvious. Yeah. That's the thing. And I, you need to get that mesh to make the film work. And as much as I adored Buck as a character, and, and people know me as a dog fan. I love <laughs> the dogs. I just I just found all the CGI stuff with the dogs really really fun and really engaging. I I know who I know in my heart of hearts. That's not a dog. It's not a dog. It's no. not real. And I don't buy into it that well. No. And it's a strange decisions. I, I haven't actually read the novel. It's on my to-do list. I've got a copy at home. I should probably get through it. It's only 100 pages long. Mm. Um, I There are some weird moments where the, the, the Buck seems to demonstrate a greater level of intelligence than you'd expect from a dog beyond emotional. Like he, he was able to, he understands alcoholism. Yeah, it's never, yeah. It's, never <laughs> it's never established that he's experienced alcohol from like a previous owner yeah it's just he sees harrison ford taking one shot of whiskey <laughs> and it's like nope i'm gonna nope. take this i'm gonna take it out i'm gonna bury it in the snow and you're not gonna get it what's, weird, <laughs> what's this weird anti-alcohol puritanism mate it's like he's not uh, an, he's not even an alcoholic he's, he's not even portrayed as an alcoholic he's just having a drink it's yeah. like maybe uh, it's, it's obviously harrison uh, well, Harrison Ford plays a character who is who's clearly grieving over the loss of one of his children yeah. or, or his or his only child. Yeah, um, and obviously he's finding that comfort in alcohol. So in a way, Buck is trying to help him grieve without the use of alcohol because obviously it could spiral out of control very easily. A- absolutely, but it does. It, it wasn't conveyed very well at all. It just felt like the dog was being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I think. I think my current view on this is I don't... It's like I came out of the film. I don't think, in all honesty, it's an overtly terrible film. I think no. I think I can imagine this being a family afternoon film in some households. It's something like if you're looking for something to watch on a rainy day, I guarantee you if this was something like on Disney Plus when it gets launched, you'd probably end up watching it because you find the CGI dog too adorable. Yeah, and, um, I, and I think families will... I think younger families will enjoy it. Mm. I, I don't think... I can't imagine... 
older children being particularly engaged, unless yeah. they are obsessive dog lovers. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest child I know, Ian Bolton, obviously. Um, um, but but I, I've, my nieces are seven and eight, and I think they would be bored out of their minds mm. watching this. Um, and also, the, there are some things with the film as well you can't really ignore. I think the pacing is a little bit all over the place as yep. we jump from owner to owner. I personally think this should not have been a film. I think this could have worked a lot better as a small mini-series and you spend each series with a different owner and Buck slowly becoming more one-on-one -on -one with the Call of the Wild, that sort of way. Yeah. Because the stuff with Omar Sy, I really enjoyed. I, I actually think the, that that act was the highlight of the movie. Mm. I thought I, I was really I was really with them and that, that it's a simple simple mission get the post on time yeah um and it's just you know, it, it works really well mm. um and it's generally like i said it's genuinely um um it's generally quite um, a thrill ride watching them like storm through this dangerous canadian landscape trying to get to the um the uh, the far out outpost yeah but then it's like the moment omar sai uh departs the film which is so flat it's, it's basically just, here you go oh it, it's it, there's no there's no even real emotional moment between the dogs and the postman. Yeah, it's it, literally here are your you have new owners now. Goodbye. Okay. Bye bye, friends. Right. What? I just, like, I've just emotionally invested in this, and now you, there's no payoff it, at all. It's kind of like The Simpsons, and Poochie is like, "I have to go now," <laughs> and someone has just put a mask on a crane and just gone. Whoop. I must I died on his way to his home planet, like. Like, <laughs> I, um, um, that was that was more of a Simpsons reference. If anyone hasn't watched the best the, episode of all time, yeah, Itchy and Poochie, ass, yeah. But it's um, but there's not. I mean, Harrison Ford's contribution isn't bad. He's he's reliable. It's not. Yeah, he, it's, I mean, he's given he's given a very um, it's a very safe performance. It's, I mean, typi it's typical Gruff Harrison Ford of I'm grieving for my son. That's all the way. I can't yeah. do a house and four. <laughs> we, we, we've learned that. It's, uh, it's probably better when I'm going, I'm Han Solo. Han Solo. Joey, why are we doing this? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. It's that sort of gruffness. And it's like, it's that gruffness, but with a sense of sensitivity. So he, don't, he can act. Harrison oh, Ford yeah, can absolutely. Act. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I can imagine other actors of Harrison Ford's age coming into this film and just using it as a boat payment. Yeah. Harrison Ford probably would not have been involved in this film unless there was something that got him interested in yeah. it. So, but no, I completely agree. It's not phoned in. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's not it's, phoned it, in. It's just very, very safe. Yeah, it's it's a bit samey, but that might be just a reflection of the film rather than his performance. I, to be perfectly honest, I think I think the biggest problem with the film <laughs> has to do with Dan Stevens and Friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had no idea that Karen Gillan, mm. who's one of the biggest stars on the planet. Like Nebula, Amy Pond, you know, is in this film. I watched the film. I didn't realise she was in the film. And it's, it's only I've got, I've got a cheat sheet here with all the sort of like performances and the, the crew. And uh, yeah, the, the starring Karen Gillan, really? Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. not even a close up she, on her. Yeah, there is literally. I do not. I can't remember seeing a close up of Dan Stevens' sort of female friend because Dan Stevens plays like a, the most two dimensional villain in the history. Yeah, of Yeah, basically, it's upper class American who's come to Canada to try and get his fair share of gold. He's an absolute twat. He's a evil bastard. All that sort of stuff. Moustache as well. Moustache twirling, striped suit. That all. That it's, whole it, palaver. It's it's more cartoony than the bloody dog. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, he's accompanied by two 
two friends, uh, one guy, and the female is apparently Karen Gillan. And you don't see a close-up of her, and it's like, okay. That must have been the easiest paycheck an actor's made like, in quite a while. No, 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 not trying to be funny, but did she not have anything to do in this film? Well, it just, th- those whole sequences, it felt like they had only taken one shot. And I, I don't know if it was a rushed production. I'm not, f- I have no idea how. Or, or they filmed a bunch of stuff and they just went, nope, doesn't, doesn't, work. doesn't work, cut it. Just use what we can. Because the, 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 the villain's cohorts are just kind of thrown away. We don't yeah. really know what happened to them. It's just a strange gaping pot, plot hole. Yeah. Um, and even if they try, I think they do try to explain it, but it's just so thrown away. It's a, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't it's really like they're gone. Where they're gone? <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe maybe they maybe they're dead. Maybe those characters had a grisly fate, and it decided we don't want to upset the children watching. Some ridiculous yeah. view like that, ignoring the fact that children like to be scared. I I thought I thought if the film was going in a different direction. I thought the film's correct direction would have been that Buck and Harrison Ford would go after Dan Stevens and the dogs and save the dogs and they'd all live happily ever after. But no, it's kind of like, oh, okay, let's just go up, let's go up the coast just to kind of reenact Harrison Ford's son's desired path to explore. Yeah. It's, it goes in a different direction. It's probably the direction the book goes in anyway. So if anyone, it, it, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if this is how the book went. Yeah, like I said, I, I apologize in advance that I haven't, familiar with the novel Not um, or novella I should say it's tiny um but it did it, the film does feel very dis- disjointed I should say um I, I think you mentioned pacing earlier it, it is the pacing is all over the place it's very jarring yeah I found it very difficult to actually get into the movie as a whole because I was, I was being constantly taken in and out yeah of the fiction um it just yeah it, it just felt like almost felt like four different movies slapped together by different editing teams. <laughs> it kind of feels like someone has made the movie edition of a very successful TV show and has failed spectacularly. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I, I'd see that. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, this isn't Suicide Squad level, ba- level no. bad of editing. It's, it's a passable movie. It just feels like there is, there, there's there are stuff chunk, missing. There's stuff, there is definitely stuff missing from this film and they've just, that will do. It's like, <laughs> that'll do, Buck. That will do, do, that will do. Yeah. Uh, so, star rating. Uh, I'm. I'm. I think I'm being a little bit generous here, and I'm saying two and a half stars. Because, I w- because it's not. Because the way I look at it is, I don't feel it's a terrible film. No. There, there are absolute problems with this film, but I still didn't mind the film. Um, but again, I just. Can't, I just can't imagine myself watching this again. No, and I, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be doing very well at the box office. I can't imagine this week um, doing very well on home media. Um, it does feel like a Sunday afternoon film <laughs> that that's designed to distract you when you're not interested in anything. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go two stars. Okay. No, yeah. I, I, I'm. I think to I, I was being a bit generous with the half, so I, well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to bu- to dial it back to two on this on this occasion. I mean, you are you are right. There are there are. It's really frustrating. It probably makes it more frustrating. Yeah. There are great moments in this film. Um, so the negatives outweigh the positives. Yeah, absolutely. Negatives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the Call of the Wild gets a Bunkerzilla film raw rating of two stars. Woof woof. <laughs> well done, Buck. <laughs> well done. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Right, let's move on to what else we've been watching this week. Uh, Christian, I think you've got the more varied pile of titles to talk about because my titles are all Bond. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, we could talk about Bond if you want. We could, well, I, 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 want it, I, want, I want a good variety. I want diversity. Diversity. I want diversity on this show. I have and I think you've got the perfect film to kick us off with. Uh, yes, Parasites. Yes, I which have, I have also seen as well. I have finally been able to see it. It's been difficult because of my, just none of my local cinemas were playing it until very recently. Um, so it's, al- the- it's almost like it won a bunch of Oscars. Stra- yeah, funny that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, I was I tried to ignore the, the the whole Oscar thing whilst going into it because I didn't want my expectations to be too high. And um, I'm a bit of an outlier in the fact that I am not a fan of um, uh, Bong Joon Ho's previous blockbuster. Uh, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, I did not like it at Have all. Have you seen any of those other films? There's uh, Mother, uh, there's no, Mother, not, nope. not the Darren Aronofsky one, but Mother, which is more the, about the, a mum trying to be, solve a crime. Uh, no, I haven't, but it, and just it's fine to separate it for the Aronofsky one because that's actually called Mother! <laughs> so uh, there's an exclamation mark. Um, <laughs> uh, no, and I've, I've, he had, there was a Netflix film with the, was it... Uh, the, the, about the animal that's used. Oh from, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I've, he- I've the host. There's the host as well. Yeah, I've I've heard good things of those. So I, I will probably give them a sh- give them a go at some point because just just putting it out there, I thought Parasite was amazing, and mm. I'm really quite chuffed it won the best picture. Although I I still think it should have been a should have been a Tarantino's year, but never mind. You know, I'm just going to be a salty. Tarantino drink, Mark. Drink, drink your salty Tarantino tears in your coffee cup. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's crying with his palm door and, and the other Oscars he's already won in his career anyway. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, Parasite is it's a fascinating movie. I mean, um, I, it's basically... Are we going to talk much about the plot? Because I, I went the into... Ba- we can, let's talk about the basic premise of it. We yeah. know, I think... This the, is, the, this big, is, the big thing about it is going in knowing as little as possible because it makes it makes the evolution of the film that much better I, I completely agree and I, I went into it blind I I, 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 I thought it was about a sort of virus pandemic I don't know it's just me picking up on the zeitgeist <laughs> what's called parasite I mean it's, <laughs> like, it's like it's not it's not about a family trying to weed its way into a rich family's life that's all that's it that's all you should say yeah because I, I going into it blind it's it's a trip and it's it's fascinating I don't know if you experienced this but I found the film is it, it very much acts in a free act structure. Acts in a free act structure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it acts like it acts. Um, the first first act, I was laughing all the way through. It was one of the funniest movies I've watched. I would describe the first act as basically a a, a basically it's a con man film. Yeah, because, it's, it's Ocean's Eleven because every member of this family, the Kims, they they have found a way to make ends meet by infiltrating this family the parks and first the 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 main son of the family becomes an english teacher and then they're going i think we've got something here and 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 it's and it's just it's an audacious joy to watch this family get into this other household it's it's like (laughs) you're just going it's like the sheer balls on some of the scheming they do (laughs) and it's and it's endearing you you're never although what they're doing on some levels is obviously wrong yeah it's never presented as being particularly no no there's no malice and it seemed to be beneficial to the family they're quote-unquote infiltrating as well yeah um and in fact the learning of the the rich family is quite fascinating in itself The, the second act is more concerned with like 
being within this world and that's where things start taking mm. a turn um and you become I, I spent that part of the film just feeling a, a sense of dread building in myself because something was clearly going to happen because this is a uh, <laughs> well first of all it's a south korean movie and every south korean movie i've ever watched gets a little bit are we allowed to swear on this show yeah, yeah, you gets, can gets a little fucked up, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a criticism. I, I, I love, <laughs> I love the way these film, um, these films can go. I it's um, like some of my some of my favorite films from South Korea have included things like Bittersweet Life, mm. uh, Old Boy. I, I was gonna, I was gonna mention if they you're could, a fan could, of Old Boy, you will love Parasite. Yeah, yeah. and the same Bittersweet Life. They're both really sort of they're engaging films and they take real dark turns mm. um and we're not going to reveal anything obviously no, no no we i think people know something happens in parasite yeah. that changes the whole dynamic <laughs> but and that's basically all we're going to say no. and the la- my last point on it is but when the thing that you know is going to happen but you don't know what's going to happen happens the final act of the movie is one of the most <laughs> tense horror movies I've watched in quite a while like my jaw was just dropped all the way through that last um last 40 minutes or so I was just absolutely horrified and at no it's, it's interesting how it kind of I think I've heard the term genre hopping yeah because it is a genre hopping movie at no point does it feel that the genre hopping compromises the story at all. It all feels very natural, very it feels authentic. A very authentic, yeah. It's, it's a smooth ride to this hor- <laughs> this awful, awful conclusion. Um, again, that's not that's not ruining the film. You you will tell that yeah. something's going to happen early on. Um, I mean, the film poster kind of shows. That oh yeah, I'm looking ev- at it right now. Yeah, the film poster itself doesn't necessarily. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> tell you yeah. that everything's going to end with <laughs> happy, happy go lucky clapping and sing songs. No, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly love this film. I, um, I, I feel like I, I need to rewatch it as soon as, as soon as it comes seen, out on home I'm media. Seeing it again, I think tomorrow. I think with, oh. my, with my other half. Because she's a she's a massive South Korean film fan. And she oh, really, really wants to see this. Excellent. I mean, it, it is great. I, I mean, I've, it definitely deserved to be nominated for Best Picture. I'm still, like I said, I'm not sure if it should have won. I still think it was a race between 1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think, I think a lot of different factors came into play with Parasite's win. I mean, when I look at the list, I think out of the, all those films, and I think I've seen majority of them apart from probably Marriage Story and Little Women. Um, I kind of felt out of the films that I saw, I think Parasite was probably the best winner because it wasn't uh, it wasn't trying to go for Oscar bait. It wasn't a prestige film. It wasn't necessarily a look how look how fanboyish I am about these types of films. Yeah, ba- this was basically something. Yes, it's something conventionally. It is something. It is something that. I, have we not seen some I think we may have seen things like Parasite in its sort of hybrid form before in across different other films and stories but the fact is this was a film that came together it clicks so well yeah it gels well it's it was a quite it was an enjoyable experience and I think to me that's why I would have still given the Oscar to Parasite well I, I don't mean to be disparaging at all I'm, I'm happy for it to mm. win and I, I think it's it's going to be looking down the line it's going to be the, it's going to be in the list of good best picture wins yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. You'd be surprised how many good picture. Um, you'd be surprised how many bad films have won the best picture Oscar. Do we? Do we even reference last year's Green Book? <laughs> I was just. I'm still mad about Shakespeare in Love, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a film that is definitely better than Saving Private Ryan. Thank you, Harvey Weinstein, especially with Ben Affleck going. What is the play, and what is my oh, part? God, God, 
Yes. Oh dear. Oh dear. But um, no, I, I I think other things played into Parasite's favour. I guess well, I, f- I think. It, the, I mean, that that's the history of the Oscars. It, yeah. it, it's timing and politics, yeah. and I think they may have just been. Um, it might be just the right time for this film. Yeah. I I hadn't realised a foreign language movie had yet to win the Best Picture. Yeah. People turn around and say, I think we. I think it was mentioned on an episode of uh, The Big Stomp, which you can also listen on Bunks of the UK and through all good podcast providers. Nice plug. Listen. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> show. It's all about the fun fun world of geek culture and our passions and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was uh, there was a comment about, obviously, the Oscars being the measuring stick about what are the best films. But the problem is, the films that appear are not necessarily the best ones because it is always being a... It, it is a political and popularity contest. Absolutely. And the, the one test I always say to people... Go on the IMDb 250. Mm. Count out how many of those films were nominated for an Academy Award, let alone won an Academy Award. Mm. Like, and I, I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, it, I mean, the, hey, the Dark Knight didn't win, but wasn't even nominated for Best Picture when it was by all <laughs> all metrics the most critically acclaimed movie of the year. I will st- correct you there. Dark Knight did win uh, Best One Actor for Ledger. No, I, 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 I'm referring specifically to the best film. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, he deserved to win that. Yeah, absolutely. Deserved and to and win even that. if he was alive that day, he still would have won. You it. think so? I, I think, I think, I think it was. See, my attitude with the whole. I've got a bit of a tangent here, but Ooh, my attitude is. I don't know who else was nominated with him. Yeah, please yeah. do. But my, my point with the Heath Ledger win is, A, it was he deserved to be nominated. B, he clearly was the best supporting actor that year by far. But C, if he hadn't died in such tragic circumstances, I don't think he would... I don't, I'm not sure he even got a nomination because, A, the Academy snobbery to those kind of performances, despite the fact that it's one of the greatest pieces of performances in the history of cinema regardless of if he's playing a comic book villain or not. So I, I have the list I have the list of who was nominated in Best Supporting Actor of the Year Heath Ledger won. Right. So Heath Ledger was nominated for The Dark Knight. He was joined by Michael Shannon for Revolutionary Road. Okay. He was joined by Philip Seymour Hoffman for Doubt. Okay. He was also joined by Josh Brolin for Milk. Okay. And Robert Dan Jr. for Tropic Thunder. <laughs> I didn't realize he was nominated for he that. Got, uh, as, like, considering the balls of that role, oh, that's a, yeah, but that's it's, it's ironic. Yeah, the fact, he's, the fact he's is, I, think, myth, I yeah. think people were in on the joke on that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no, I, he's, I, that, I've, I mean, I've seen I've seen all those films. I still think Ledger would have won. Really? Oh, 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 oh. I mean, it's like it's like in Revolutionary Road. Obviously, it's the it's the Sam Mendes. Is it Sam Mendes? Yes, it is. Yes, Sam it Mendes. is. Yes, uh, Kate Winslet, DiCaprio, living. This, uh, living an uh, ill-fulfilling suburban life in America. Yeah. Uh, and Michael Shannon is kind of like the, the stone that goes through the glass window. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's a good Michael Shannon role. He appears, he gets really menacing, he shouts, he goes he goes all biblical, well, that sort of way. Was he nominated for um, um, The Shape of Water? I don't know why it took me so long to think that. I don't think he was. Yeah, I thought he was very good in that. Um, Josh Brolin is was all right in Milk. It was more of the Sean Penn show. It is the Sean Penn show. Philip Seymour Hoffman because he won Best Actor that year, didn't he? Yeah, Sean Penn won Best Actor that year. Uh, I think over Mickey Rourke. I think for um, wrestler for the wrestler. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, upset the, with me. Yeah, because that that was the year where it was Sean Penn for Milk, Frank Langella for Frost Nixon, Richard Jenkins for the Visitor, Brad Pitt for Benjamin Button, and Mickey Rourke for the wrestler. Yeah, that should have been Rourke. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't understand the Academy's um, 
love for Sean Penn. I think he's a deplorable human being, personally. Mm. Um, but yes, because I, I, I remember watching Doubt, and it's like, Doubt is the Meryl Streep, Amy Adams show. Yeah. It's it's the two of them butting heads. Oh, no, hang on. Or was it? I'm not sure. But it was definitely Meryl Streep, because Meryl Streep did get nominated for an Oscar for that one as well. Meryl Streep was nominated for an Oscar? No. No. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, I, I, I my attitude, uh, maybe my problem going to the Heath Ledger thing, maybe my problem with the Academy Awards is I'm just too cynical. Mm. But then again, the, the Academy Award has proven me right out of ninety times now. <laughs> so yeah. it's the, I just it's I like it's like for every good decision that the Academy makes, there for, are there, there are there are twenty ones that are just bad. What, what, what Ian's trying to say is, for every Return of the King, there are twenty crashes. <laughs> Who has watched Crash in the te- last 10 years? Uh, no one. I don't think no I've... No one's watched the Crash. Only thi- the only thing I remember from Crash is the song, In the Deep. Crash only won because a lot of members of the Academy were too afraid to vote for Brokeback Mountain, which yeah. was clearly the best film that year, like, mm. by far. But they were like, oh no, it's too... We can't. Oddly enough, I think Brokeback Mountain would win today, even though it's only been about 10 years. Yeah. I think Brokeback Mountain would have won. Would have yeah. won an Oscar today if it was released today. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, it's, again, it's, it's, it's timing, it's politics, it's just, it wasn't the right movie. Um, I'm glad Parasite won though because as much as I'm cynical and I think they're stupid, I would love to win an Academy Award. <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> if it's, I won one, I'd be like, no, these are the best things in the world. Everyone else is wrong. Shut up. Give me my little Oscar. I, yeah, I think, I think it's just been during the award season, it's just been a joy to watch the Parasite team win awards and just look, look <laughs> like they're having the time of their lives. This, is, this might be, for some of them, that, this might be the highest their film career is ever going to get. And yeah. they really, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, have a box office success or something. But to really dominate an award season or come through and just suddenly win the big one is I think I think it's a good it, story. It's, isn't it's, it? a ho- it's a wholesome thing. It yeah. is a wholesome thing. The thing is, it's like it is now watching to see how the award bodies react moving forward. Yeah. I think, especially in terms of diversity, because well, it's, it's, this it's, year's ones have been unfortunately marred by di- diversity issues again. Well, the, the problem is, it's it's not necessarily again. We've, the, got, we've mentioned, we've mentioned it, this it's before. It's it might not necessarily be an issue of um, diversity in film. It's a case of access to diverse film. Yeah, most people in the academy are probably only seeing the films that are being distributed. Most of the films that are being distributed are majority white, and it's that's not. I nec- wonder if the people involved in the films themselves are just going. I'm just going to nominate for my films. I'm not going to consider anyone else's. And I unfortunately, I think that might be a case. It may be. I mean, again, it's politics. Yeah. It's like I mean, an Academy Award boosts numbers. Yeah. <laughs> so if you put, if you put on a DVD or a Blu-ray Best Picture winner, that sells. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at Parasite's box office. Yeah. It, it skyrocketed. Oh, absolutely. And, and and I'm glad. I'm glad. Even, it, 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 more people see it. The more people could be... Or what was it um, uh, John who said? What, you know, his acceptance speech. Oh, just if, the if, two if, inches. Yeah, on the Golden Globes we won for Best Foreign Language film. It's like, if once you get past those two inches at the bottom... The Absol- world opens up. Absolutely, and it's true. And in fact, one of the other films I watched this week. Before we go, I'm five star. Yeah, yeah, five stars. Yeah. That's, that's, five an, star e- that's an easy one. <laughs> that's an easy one. That's an easy we one. should have on the Bungazoo website. We should just have the the 2020 chart from Film Raw of the start of, of our star ratings and see what films remain at the top at the end of the year. That's a good idea. Yeah. That's cool. Um, the the other films I've, I've been re- revisiting some like um, some classic films this year um, this week. From the 90s, I chose uh, Mathieu Kosovitz's um, influential French 
crime drama Lahane, which mm-hmm. translates into hate. Which is, yep. uh, have, you, have, have you seen it before? Uh, I have not, but I am a fan of Vincent, Vincent Cassell, so I do, ah. need to, I do need to watch this eventually. Ah, excellent. So that, do you know the premise? Uh, I do not. So, so uh, please enlighten the listeners. It's set in the projects of Paris, which are very mm. poor um, areas. Um, it, it, if you didn't know it was set in Paris, you'd think it was like a, a, a war zone. Like mm. it, it looks, <laughs> it, it, yeah. Um, and it involves it, it's basically the parts of France where, um, uh, which are most economically depraved, and where people who are um, either migrants or generational descendants of migrants have just—it feels like the authorities have just shoved them together in these ghettos. Mm-hmm. And the f- story follows um, three um, three teenagers, one Jewish, one Arabic, and a black man who are all close friends. They refer to each other as cousins all the way through the film. Mm. And it's them versus the world, the world being the police, mm. the sort of the, the metropolitan elites who come in and almost like an invading army are like roughnecking these, these basically these bored, poor teenagers who've got nothing mm. better to do. Um, it's presented for their point of view and it's a thrilling journey. The, the, the setup is rather brilliant. After a night of riots... The news reports state that a police officer has lost his gun in the project. Oops. Yep. And the question, my partner watched it with me in 10 minutes in, she turned around like, which one of the three has the gun? Wow. <laughs> Keep watching. <laughs> no, so. find out today on La Haine. La Haine. <laughs> and I mean, La Haine is right. Hate is what fuels these young men. And, and you can't help but emphasize with the situation they've been born into. And it's watching this rage in these these very um very strong um potentially dangerous characters one of which has a gun <laughs> like i'm watching them trying to engage with the rest of paris um they, they, they sort of walk through the more elite parts um they even visit an art gallery at one point mm. so there's a real culture clash there um it's just a, it's a fascinating very um very um raw depiction of this life and it's it's both funny and poignant it's heartbreaking it's exciting it's generally thrilling and I, if you do get the chance to watch it please do if you want to see more french cin- um, french films you cannot lahane is a good starting place i mean it's is is the antithesis of my other usual recommendation for getting into french cinema amelie they have they have two very different. I, I can think of I can think of a number of different French films that I've I've really enjoyed. There's uh, Thirty Six, which is a police crime corruption thriller. Uh, there's uh, Point Break uh, or Point Blank actually Point, Point Blank, Blank yeah. which is the which was remade recently for Netflix with uh, Anthony Mackie and um, the guy who plays oh, I can't remember Frank Griller. That's him. That's him. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I remember Matthew Kasovitz is. He's not just a, a director. He has appeared in, in quite a few bits and pieces yeah, as he, well. I believe he, he has a role in Lahaine as well. I can't, I can't remember which character specifically. Uh, but yeah, I think he's appeared in, he's appeared in Munich. Oh, really? Uh, he was in Haywire as well. And uh, he also, I think he directed the ill-fated um, Babylon AD. Yeah, I mean... Uh, <sighs> ah, ah, he's directed a film that I really like, The Crimson Rivers. I've never seen that. Crimson Rivers is, it's kind of like a very dark... Um, it's like, have you ever heard of BBC's Messiah, which was like a dark murder mystery of someone killing, yeah. killing someone, or d- someone committing murders in like and as religious acts? Well, basically, the Crimson Rivers is something similar, but it has Vincent Cassell 
and Jean Renou uh, trying to get hey, to the bottom of these yeah. very dark, love, dangerous crimes. Love me a bit of Jean Renou. Jean Renou. <laughs> Matilda. <laughs> uh, I was like, I am Jean Renou. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, we could talk about Jean Renault for days. Yeah, yeah. We, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get Jean, Jean Renault and Ronin. Oh, I need to watch Ronin again. Leon, mate. Leon, oh. the best French movie. It's the best French movie because it's in English, which is easier for me. I know I just said people need to read subtitles, but I'm also lazy, so. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but talk about Ferris Bueller. Oh, yeah. So I'm just about, I, I would give that, I'd give Lahane five stars. Lahane five stars. We, we're going to yeah. give everything five stars. Uh, it, it didn't come out in 2020, so it can't. Meet the leaderboard, I'm afraid, this year. Oh, that's fine. If, okay, if we were running the show when the <laughs> film came out, it would be on the leaderboard, but we both would be in uh, an antenna at the time. I would be seven, and I don't think there would be when, much when of a did pod- Le- When did Lehane come out? Lehane came out in 1995, and I was born in uh, 87, so I'd I be, would have been 10. You'd been 10, yep. And there wouldn't be much of a podcasting platform at that point, <laughs> would there? We would have been one of the best films. <laughs> DuckTales! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I give it 17 stars because it's the best movie. I gave it five Harry Bow. So I, I talk about this seminal piece of uh, coming of age crime drama from France, one of the greatest movies of all time. And Ian's first thought is DuckTales. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, that's, I think it was one that of movie first, is crap. It was. I was clutching it at films that I'd saw. <laughs> no, I think, no, yeah, DuckTales Duck or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Uh, the best ooze, uh, Mousetrap or Mousetrap is an underrated movie. Mm. Really, <laughs> maybe maybe a bit for another discussion. But yeah, I, I'm yeah. distracting you from Ferris Bueller. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. The, the, <laughs> other, the other film I've seen this week is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Me and Mitch, we always pick films based on the previous film, and um, that's the connection was coming of age. So, well, they're, they're both coming of age movies, just very different in tone. Go from violence to lazy Matthew Broderick. Lazy, <laughs> so lazy. It's interesting. I I've seen. I think I've seen every Matthew Broderick movie except for this one, and this is the Matthew Broderick movie. Um, and I've only ever seen him play uncool creeps. Like he's, he's and like um, my my image of um, Matthew Broderick is him in Election, which is oddly enough a kind of an oh, Election's a good film. I wasn't too taken back. I wasn't too keen on it, but I, I appreciated it. I can understand why it was popular. Um, but he's basically. That is clear. In hindsight, I see that election is an inversion of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's become the asshole headmaster. Oh, I've, I've, I'm just having a quick glance through uh, Broderick's film history. I forget Cable Guy. Yeah, Cable Guy, underrated Jim Carrey classic. I think, yeah. Un- underrated. Uh, Glor- Stiller directed that, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, Glory with Denzel and Morgan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lion King is probably his biggest film. Yep, War Games. War Games. Well, in terms of box office success, yeah, Lion King. We don't mention Godzilla. Oh, God. <laughs> Jean Leno, who was also in, in Godzilla. Yes, he was. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Jean Leno. So you're remaking Godzilla. Yeah. How much influence from Japan are you going to have? Nah, we're thinking France instead. What? <laughs> <laughs> do, do, does French cinema have much of a connection with the Godzilla films? Nah. Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Um, we, but we, no do, um, we do not understand these giant lizard. <laughs> But I, I'd recently, yeah, I was just saying, I recently watched The Breakfast Club for the first time as well, and you can see, you can see the same for for the benefit of people who can't see us, Ian, because we're on to radio, <laughs> on the podcasting, on to, to podcast. Yeah, he's just he's put his fist bumping like the end of the film. We're going to get simple minds over this. You can do that right in the edit. <laughs> hey, 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 hey! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be an extended episode. <laughs> Carry on. Um, yeah, you, you, you could see. I mean, if, if, if it was John Hughes responsible for both films, I believe. Uh, yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you, I, I really enjoyed this. It was just fun. It was really fun. It was. It was a lot more. Is it? It was a lot deeper piece than I was expecting. I mean, it's not the same level as the Breakfast Club, um, but it, it kind of suckers you in towards the end. Um, but the it's just it's just a sheer delight watching these um, <laughs> poor teenagers going around looking at the best things that, that Chicago, Illinois has to offer. I really enjoyed watching all the art gallery scenes with the Smiths playing in the background, and um, you know um, Alan Ruck as the um, is Alan Ruck, isn't it? Yeah, he plays the absolute. Arsehole. No, no, Alan Ruck plays his friend. Who am I thinking? Who plays the headmaster? He, um, I don't know if Tom Head. Oh, because he's in Deadwood. Uh, Isn't he in lots of other sort of random family films? Yeah, which is problematic because he was convicted for um, sex offences in the early noughties. Oh. Uh, yeah, it, which amazes me that he has a... He still has work. Why can I not think of his name? We're so prepared. Jeffrey Jones. Thank you, Jeffrey Jones. Yes, he plays um Edward Rooney, the headmaster, and he is. I mean, he is great in it. He's an absolute arsehole, and it's an abs- It's a sheer delight watching everything go wrong for him. Mm. Um, don't understand how he's still getting work in this day and age <laughs> post the conviction, but you know, mm. it, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, have you, have you seen it before? Don't think I have. You haven't seen I've it. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen the iconic bits in things like film clips and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's film. also it's been homaged and I, let's be honest, it's I'll been be ripped a, off a million times. I'll since. be honest. Sometimes when people have love for these, uh, love for the eighty films and eighties style films, it's like sometimes I'm just not drawn to it. It's yeah. like it's like how people. It's like, for example, people adore things like Ghostbusters, and I'm just kind of going, I I, I get it, but I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not amored with it, and I think recent fan behaviours really not made it even more interesting for me. No, I'm I'm never I'm not one that's particularly I I'm, I'm never consider myself a, I only I only like music from the eighties or I only like certain genres. Yeah, I, I've, if a film's good, it's good. Um, I oddly enough, I recently rewatched Ghostbusters because I I thought to myself this would be good. So I used to like this as a kid. I don't think the first Ghostbusters movie is particularly great. Yeah. I think there's a there's a nasty misogynistic streak all the way through it, which I found a bit uncomfortable. And I'm I'm hardly <laughs> I'm hardly mis- funny that considering the reaction to answer the call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean I I'm, I'm also of the side that if you the idea of making it, I didn't think it was a sensible idea making it entirely. The, the remake being an entirely um, female cast. My problem with the Ghostbusters, the the answer the call is that. Um, it becomes oh look all white men are stupid and evil cool that's most your audience who are going to be alienated there because <laughs> you know it's fairly true it's fair. but um you couldn't have some healthy you know balance between the sort of like yeah I mean it's just it's, it's just like properties like that that people have so much fondness for so it's like I've seen I've seen numerous films from the 80s like I've seen the the, the fun Arnie action films and stuff like well, that I, I love those films and those those are fun it's like yeah. things like Commando and that they're always fun Commando is a great movie you've got some Steam Benedict <laughs> <laughs> or beat Benedict me to oh, it's Benedict it's not Benedict it's, it's Benedict. Benedict yeah you beat me to the awful Arnie impersonation <laughs> no. oh don't mind my friend he's dead tired <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of my favourite films of all time is, is The Terminator and that's I believe from the 80s In fact, yeah Terminator's 80s yeah. yeah it's one yeah. of the most 80s films ever made <laughs> Was the first the first Rambo was eighties as well? I think that was late seventies actually. 
Could be wrong. First blood. First blood. To the computers. To the computers. <laughs> <laughs> or the mobile phone. I mean, the, the, the sequels are very 80s. Well, this, basically, I think First Blood is probably the best Rambo you'll get, and it just goes downhill from there. First, First Blood is a great movie. First Blood is 82. Oh, it's a lot later then. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, it's a weird thing where I do notice people our age who weren't alive in the 80s or just born in the 80s have this weird false nostalgia for the period, even though they mm. weren't never actually embraced. I mean, mo- the people I know, my friends who grew up in the 80s or like adults in the 80s, they hated that period of time. It was awful to live in. And this, mm. <laughs> I mean, econo- the economic um, consequences of being like, lower class in this country and in America, you know, the effect of uh, <laughs> neoliberalism and re- Reaganomics, you know, the, the, the heightened tensions of the Cold War, Everyone I know who lived in the eighties says it's, it was awful. Everyone I know who didn't, they they have these weird nostalgia glasses for it. Like yeah, just and I think you see that with with a lot of the eighties titles that get. Like, it's like the thing with like it's like Stranger Things is set during the eighties, isn't it? Yes, and it's and it's like I haven't seen Stranger Things, so I'm oh, I'm it's, not, it, I, I, I'm w- not going to pass judgment on the show itself. But it's just kind of how people latch onto that eighties feel. Yeah, it's 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 a false sense of eighties. It's it's almost a regurgitated pop culture eighties that doesn't that never actually happened. Yeah. Um, but Stranger Things is very good. Um, it's more of a, it, like all like all like all film like all television. It's a reflection of the age it's made. So it's it's what it's what I'm talking about. Stranger Things is what people our age think the '80s was. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not the reality, but it's the same. <laughs> it's the same with Braveheart. That's not how that. <laughs> that's not how the Scottish Wars of Independence actually worked at all. There wasn't even a sense of England or Scotland at that period. It was a series of feudal lords, <laughs> like mm. and peasants who didn't know what was going on because how could they? So, mm. but that was made but it's 90s. a very yeah. It it's more of a reflection of attitudes towards England and Scotland in 1994 and five rather than 800 years beforehand. So it's a, yeah. yeah. Oh well, yeah. It's just I, a bit of a rant. I don't know how I got into that from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I, I you know, I, I, I think. I mean, it's like it's it's nice. It's like these little tangents we have. Are nice. It's it's just it's a nice sort of thing just to when we dive into the whole world of film a little bit. Well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would recommend if you get the chance, watch Ferris Bueller. Mm. Um, even if it's just a case of you could say I've watched this film, mm. um, you can, you'll see the impact it's had on many many of its sort of predecessors. Mm. I mean, I'm not really. I don't know if I'm really a fan of this genre. I really liked Booksmart. Which came out last year, mm. which is um, sort of a female-led version of the sort of this kind of like American teenager coming of age story. Uh, but aside from that, oh, super bad, I liked as well. That's mainly because of McLovin. <laughs> it's just McLovin. I am McLovin. I need that ID. I but need it in my wallet. Unfortunately, <laughs> like, the guy who plays McLovin has just been now side road into those type of roles now. Even when he's yeah. sort of playing, it's like the only other noticeable roles probably uh, being the baddie in Kickass. And Kick-Ass 2. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's him, isn't it? Yeah, he's the, the motherfucker. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Other, other than that... Oh, no, Pitch Perfect. He was, was a fun... Oh, I haven't seen Pitch Perfect. Zoom, 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 Oh, God, please stop. Well, I'll Right, is it my turn? Yeah, what what films have you Well, it's mostly been a Bond week, because I'm gearing up for Bunker on Bond. What Bonds have you watched? Well, I watched the last two of the Brosnan era, so we went from World's Not Enough into Die Another Day. And um, I think these two films summed up some of the best and the worst of Bond of Brosnan's run, to be perfectly honest. Because both film both films in their own right have 
good story elements. It's like, for example, World's Not Enough has uh, things like Sophie Marceau as one of the first female main baddies, which is really, really cool. Um, and then you have Die Another Day, where Bond's being betrayed. He has to go off grid, so basically he can't trust anyone in MI5, MI6, MI7, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and he goes off grid to get answers. It's just... It's from simple little premises and stuff like that. The film veers, these films kind of veer off because of some, again, questionable choices. Uh, so it's like with, it's like Wells Not Enough. You've got Bond going up against uh, a terrorist who has got a bullet lodged in his brain. Uh, it's, Robert, it's Robert Carlyle, isn't Robert it? Robert Carlyle, yeah. yeah. Who you think, oh, will be really cool. Oh, this is going to be cool because Robert Carlyle is a good character actor, yeah. train spotting, absolute. It's like he's one of the dullest belt Bond baddies ever really because it's like i cannot feel pain pain okay i cannot feel pain i'm already dead it's like okay do you have a spark of a spark of character a witty comeback or kind of flamboyance i cannot feel any pain great absolutely great so brilliant casting wasted potential yeah yeah pretty much there then you've got some stunt casting going on denise richards Obviously, uh, actress or kind of stunt actress. Well, it's not. She's not really, it's stunt casting in the terms of she's a popular name for just being eye candy. Yeah, and and I, I and I believe believe Denise Richards has been better in other films, like say Starship Troopers, uh, Wild Things, and stuff like that. Yeah, but come on, we, everyone be be honest. She was cast because she was Denise Richards. Yeah, and, and, and I'm I'm trying I'm trying to just put it. Put well, what, why are most of the Bond girls up until recently cast? Yeah. No, not that's not being disparaging to some of the great performances no, over the I'm, years. No. But I mean, that's if you, if you if you don't think the Bond producers were after eye candy, yeah. then you don't understand how Hollywood <laughs> it's, works. It's fairly interesting because they got Halle Berry in for Die Another Day mm. the year she won her Oscar. So, but they they were trying to capitalize on her critical yeah. claim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, this the, was this the beginning of the end of her sort of? peak because there's nothing really been X-Men that was before that was 2000 no she was still she was still I was still in it but yeah, it was still Storm, Storm's never yeah. really a fleshed out character um, in her films so, yeah that's kind of like the bad thing from uh, uh, Wells Enough in terms of Dying Over Day where do we begin <laughs> I it's one of the only Bond films no, wait a minute that and Quantum of Solace are the only two Bond films I haven't watched the Ian Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 one of the reasons why I haven't watched it is because I have seen the Madonna scene and my brain just <laughs> went, nah. That, that, that scene is absolutely terrible. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I actually, I watched Evita recently. She's great in Evita. I thought it was awful. Oh. I, I, I hated that film. All I right. hated it. Everything about it. The music was awful. The story. Why am I? Why do I care about this? Di- the wife <laughs> of a dictator. <laughs> why? Why do you, why do you why? care about Avita? Why? Yeah. Why? What? <laughs> what? But like, how is this person a hero? <laughs> like, I don't. I don't. I, because she asked Argentina not to cry for her. I, anyway, I thought it was overrated. <laughs> pap. Yeah. But, um, anyway, so go back yeah. to Bond. Yeah. I mean, Die Another Day. Obviously, Madonna song. <sighs> you know. It's, it, I it's, actually, a de- it's a decent song, but it's not a Bond song. Yes, I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. I really like that song. Oh, I liked it when it came out. I thought it was really interesting, but I can't imagine it working as an over... Does it no, not? It does no. not work as a Bond thing. No. Even though they try and make the title sequence interesting with Bond being tortured in North Korea and stuff like that, and you go, oh, okay, this is... Adds narrative. It's to like it. it's a good narrative. It's, like it's, the pre- it's a pre-title sequence that actually 
continues the story as the credits are rolling, which you don't really get in Bond films. Yeah, but in, in some sense, it's kind of a boring cop out as well. Yeah, because like, I mean, actually, it worked. It worked. I mean, because this was like the twentieth Bond film, they were doing lots of winks and nods everywhere. It's like the gun barrel. This is at the, during the gun barrel. Brosnan shoots down the barrel, and a bullet comes out, and it's like, okay, why have we got a special three D bullet popping out? No reason. No reason at all. All right, fine. <laughs> and then you have you have silly lines like John Cleese, who plays Q for this film, just goes, "Here's your watch. It's uh, it's your twentieth, I believe." It's like, oh, how does time oh. fly? Oh, for the love! It's like be a celebration of Bond as it's evolved. Don't just go. Let's just have a nod and wink to everything. Because I mean, I I think I thought the way Skyfall dealt with it. Was so much better having yeah. the little little nods, sort of like yeah. subtle cues, and like yeah. And then at the end they say, "Oh, happy 50th anniversary." It's like, fair enough, that's yeah. fine. Because yeah. by that by that time, at the end of Skyfall, when Craig Craig's in the old M office, and you've got Ray Fiennes now installed as M, and all of that, you kind of go, oh, "It's like it's like the world of bombs coming together." And I think that's when you go, "Yes, that sort of nod and wink works perfect." Yes. Because it, it doesn't, it doesn't take you out of the drama. It, it shits <laughs> like a lead balloon. It's like an absolute shit lead balloon in oh. dying of a day. Because you have things like, uh, also you see like uh, the villain Gustav Graves, played by Toby Stevens, uh, is uh, so like he's a billionaire who's inherited a diamond mind or something like that. And then there's like lines like, "Well, diamonds are forever, aren't forever," all that sort of stuff. It's the stupid. It's the stupid drops and stuff like that and that really damaged the film but the thing that damages it the most is the cgi action sequence is how they use cgi well basically there's a segment where bond has to escape uh, a giant cascade of water coming in ice caps or something like that so he grabs like uh he grabs like um he grabs like a power gliding ski and stuff like that and goes for it and it is cgi and it it's basically bond on a green screen and oh. it is terrible oh. it's not it's not the funny thing is like when you watch the films in 4k and you kind of go that's bond that's not bond that's just, that's a model that's bond that's actually not too bad because you go oh yeah it's the it's, it's just that's the craft of the age but, yeah. when, but when there is absolute no no sense or no care to actually just go, you know what? Let's try and make this look as real as possible. And it does not. Who'd win the fight? CGI James Bond or CGI Dog from Call of the Wild? CGI Dog. Fair. Fair. And <laughs> um, I, I think it's a bit sad because Brosnan was a good Bond. It's just unfortunately the components around him in the, tel- in the second half of his career as Bond just kind of fell flat. Yeah, because I, mean, I, 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 I'm, a, I really like his first few films. I, I mean, Gold, Goldeneye is one of my favorite Bond movies, and mm. I really, really like Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never I Dies. Think that's I, quite an underrated movie. I think Tomorrow Never Dies is basically the it's basically the best packaged Bond I think Brosnan had because yeah. you had good action sequences, you had a silly quirky Bond, villain, yeah. silly quirky villain from Jonathan Price. Uh, you had a really good solid Bond girl leading Michelle Yeoh. Um, yeah, and it's like, like I said, I think you've got more of a general sense of a world, a world-topping adventure. Yeah, die another day. You don't really go to any really glamorous places. You go to you go to somewhere on the outskirts of Russia, and then 
I can't remember what else. I think I, I remember oil seen. fields. Oil That's, fields, yeah. and that wasn't really glamorous. And then Dying of a Day is kind of like when he goes to what the like I said, the first bit of Dying of a Day is great because it's kind of like you're going, oh, Bond's going off grid again. It's kind of be, oh, are we going to like we're well, seeing like, bro- license to kill territory, uh, license to kill thing. Are we seeing Brosnan kind of being rogue agent in a way? And you go, this is cool. This is a good idea. But by halfway, it's like, oh, you're right, Bond. He's a baddie all along. Go get him. All right, I'll go to Iceland and then North Korea again. <laughs> Glamorous locations. After we've after we've started off in North Korea and then we've gone to Cuba and then we've gone to London and then we go to Iceland and then we go. Oh, it doesn't help that the Born Identity came out. At the no, same yeah, time. We, we, yeah, we talked we talked about this. I think last episode, like yeah. Born Identity came out and really kind of went, oh, wow, Bond is a, it's, it's Bond's a what, bit behind. It's interesting <laughs> what makes things uncool. Mm. <laughs> it's like that's what broke Bond. It took it took Casino Royale to be as revolutionary as a film and for that franchise as it yeah. was to save the franchise because it was kind yeah. of it's kind of dead. Yeah, after that. I, I, I'd say if I wanted to watch a Bros and Bond, I'd pick up Golden Earl to whenever dies. So, what star ratings are you going to give these two Bond movies? They're both two stars, two and a bit stars. Yeah. Like, um, it's like they're bits alike, but I know they are not good as a whole picture. There's there's things that there are things that hold it back from being really solid good bond because it's like it's like yeah you can you can go look at uh, Dalton stuff and kind of go well they're not necessarily uh, grin uh, smile inducing bonds, but the no, fa- they're, still, the fa- they're but solid the, films. But the fact is they're still good films. They did feel more like from Russia Love films. Yeah, the time. License to Kill is more like their attempt at being a modern eighties action film, which didn't necessarily work because of the age rating. A lot of people really kicked off about it being violent, but the fact of the matter is, it's like Bond. Bond was never uh, Bond was never a family <laughs> have, character. Have you read the books? Yeah, <laughs> and funny enough, in the next film I'm talking about, um, the uh, Timothy Dalton actually addressed actually addresses this in the fi- in 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 the film. Basically, the the last one I've watched this week is Everything or Nothing. It's a uh, it's a documentary that came out just in time for Skyfall when it came out, and it sort of charts the the previous fifty years of Bond. So starting from obviously being a book by Ian Fleming to how the film rights were purchased, how Connery was cast, and you go through you go through pretty much every iteration of Bond up to Daniel Craig. It's an hour and forty minutes. It's a bit of a whirlwind tour, but you go through some of the some of the key points. You go through Connery Connery's. Uh, uh, deterioration of not liking being bombed and feeling like he's been used, yep. and he goes in and and his public spat with the producers. Uh, you go through uh, the Kevin McClory situation where Kevin McClory was a producer and writer who worked with Ian Fleming on a story that would soon become Thunderball. And the moment Thunderball got optioned for a film, he just sprung out like a can of worms. Who was determined to make to declare that Bond would belong to him when Ian Fleming died. And and unfortunately, that the first court battle about uh, McClory versus Fleming was was stressful enough that unfortunately it killed Fleming, not ne- not directly, but it contributed to his health. Yeah. And then you had the things like Never Say Never Again, which is again McClory coming back to remake Thunderball because that was the only Bond film he could make, but he wanted to make his own Bond films. I, I did wonder why it was the same plot as Thunderball. It is literally it, it is, is Thunderball. It, it's Thunderball. Yeah. It's Thunderball. But then he had the weapon of Sean Connery, who still had a personal beef with the Broccoli family at that time. Um, and then you go you go through things like, um, I think one of the more fascinating things, and it's kind of like one of the mini heartbreaking things, is Brosnan, because they talk about how Brosnan was literally cast, signed, sealed, and virtually delivered to be the next Bond after Roger Moore. It was only at the very last moment on the day they were due to announce him that the TV company renewed his show Remington Steel and he couldn't do Bond. So basically, 
he had the part and it was ripped away from him. Oh, he must have spent like five and years gutted. Like yeah, and and, and it was and and there has a very frank interview with Pierce Wilson about that, and you feel for the guy because it's like, oh, I've done the. It was like we did the photos, we had a big press launch ready to go. It's like I was. This is like this is like the the best time of my life. It's like I'm really excited. I'm going to be James Bond, and then the phone rings and they go, "Yep, uh, Remington Stills being renewed for another season on another network." Oh. The, uh, and, and the sad thing is Remington still cancelled halfway through its run. Wow. Yeah, and so you, you, you have Brosnan being frank about seeing all these billboards with Timothy Dalton on as the limited, been, and, I mean, it, and it literally killed him. It, it not literally killed him, but yeah, it's no, like no, it crushed his soul. Crushed his soul. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, it paid out well for. I mean, I, I, I think Goldeneye is one of the, like I just said, one of the best Bond films. Although yeah. it's a shame how his Bond kind of just sort of patted out towards the end. Yeah. What, a, what a boom to start with. Yeah. I mean, like. But yeah, it's like I think I showed you the clip of Brosnan being kind of uh, given the role finally. Yeah, and there's it's the bit where he just kind of goes as like, right, I'm I'm going to play golf for a second. I just want to just want to check my agent. It's like it's done. The deal is done. Yes, it's signed. Yes, no one is going to interfere. No, are you sure? Are you sure? Okay, you can't tell anyone until the official announcement. And Brosnan goes, okay, and he goes, I put the phone down, and he just went, I am bloody James Bond at last. <laughs> and it's like one of those little sort of things, like. Yeah, it's kind of like things work out for him, which is really, really nice. But um, And then they also go into things like Craig being cast as Bond and people going, I don't want a Bond blonde. And you, and you, and you think you some mean of a the, blonde you, Bond? Yeah. You, <laughs> you, think some of, you think some of the fan outrages over the last couple of years were bad? No, it wasn't just that. It was the media. The press was like, vicious. I mean, yeah. I, I remember being like just taken away by how this I actually was genuinely excited for Craig no I thought that was excellent I, I, I was, yeah I was really excited for it and, yeah. and hey he was proved right yeah <laughs> I mean he's had the most successful Bond films I've, yeah, I, without doubt he has been the most consistently good Bond and the most consistently good Bond films yeah that's that's without a doubt I, I mean, mean I know I know Connery has probably held as the Bond I think I think the film I think everything on I think changes my opinion a bit more on Connery because it's like well, unless, his, unless his backstage Connery, uh, dickery. Yeah, uh, if Connery was there to actually talk about it and kind of give his side and stuff like that, maybe. But the fact of the matter is, it does not paint him in a good light. And people go, oh, yeah, but he was the best Bond. It's like, yeah, he was the best Bond until he had a hissy fit about the money he, was ma- he wasn't making and then had public spats with the producers and expected things to be all right. It's kind of, I think we, we, we talked about this. Uh, we talked about this before we started recording when it comes to when it came to Craig and obviously those comments he made in the media during Spectre about slashing his wrists. Yes. And the that, was, that, was clearly a, that was clearly a remark on the, the, the physical toll the productions of a modern Bond yeah. film take. It and ev- and yeah. everyone's quick to jump and say, oh, he hates Bond. It's like, no, if he hated Bond, he would not be, he would. He wouldn't not be kind of trying to make each film decent, at least. And also the fact that people were ignoring the fact that he may have been joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. this is true, and this is true. I mean, it's kind of yeah, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good documentary. If you've got a chance, uh, it's on iTunes. It's on down. It's on download. You can get it on DVD for cheap now. And if you, you know, it's quite nice to watch in the run up to uh, No Time to Die. Anyway, uh, that's I think that's all we've got time for this episode of uh, Film Raw. It's been a little bit of a, a divergent one, but I think um, I think we've had a little bit of fun with this one. I think it's been fun. I've enjoyed myself. Yes, everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. Let's give this episode four stars. Four stars. <laughs> four stars. <laughs> Happiness all round. But this ep- <laughs> listen to this podcast right, instead of watching Into the Wild. Like, is that even the name of the film? No, no. That's how bad that film was. <laughs> I can't even remember the name of the film. 
What's so, it called? Call, the call, the call, to, the, call to the bloody wild. This podcast is better the, than the, the call, call to the entering of the wild dog. That is not a dog. That's the name of the film. <laughs> it's on the poster now. It's on the poster. It's on the poster. Someone do that in Photoshop for us. Two stars, Bunkerzilla. <laughs> And yes, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget, you can visit us at bunkerzilla.co.uk for more film reviews. We have brand new film reviews for My Hero Academia, Heroes Rising, and a lot more in the pipeline. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can do by sending an email to contact at bunkerzilla.co.uk. You can also follow Bunkerzilla on social media, both Facebook and Twitter, with the handle Bunkerzilla UK. Until next time, thank you much for listening. I've been Ian Bolton, and I've been joined by Christian R. Allen. Goodbye. Bye. Keep it all cinematic, folks. Adios. Toodle Pepsi. Enjoy the show. Discover more Bunkazilla originals at bunkazilla.co.uk. Mm.